0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Dan Abate. He is an entrepreneur, thought leader, and investor with a career-long focus in business process optimization and automation using advanced technology, organizational development, and continuous improvement. Dan has a heavy transaction background including startup financing, mergers and acquisitions, and turnarounds. As an investor, Dan's focus is on capital preservation, fixed income, and cash flow through a variety of investment vehicles. On this week's episode, we talk about what does a chief problem solver at a company do, when to replace staff with software, what is the thought process when building customized software for a company versus buying a third-party license, strategies for acquiring a company, and much more. All right, now let's start this week's episode of The silicon valley podcast enjoy welcome to the silicon valley podcast with your host sean flynn who interviews famous entrepreneurs venture capitalists and leaders in tech learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today all right everyone welcome to this week's episode of the silicon valley podcast now on today's episode, we got Dan. I'm not going to do any about his background. I'll let him give us a little bit of his career up until this point. But for everyone out there, all I'm going to say is you're in for a treat for today. So Dan, could you tell our audience a little bit about your career up into this point before we dive into the questions?
1: Yeah, I'll try to keep it quick so that we can get into some maybe more interesting stuff. Just to give a point of reference for my background, I grew up in manufacturing. I'm from Chicago originally. My dad was in manufacturing, so that's where I grew up in that world. I, was, uh, I started working at his place when I was like 14. I uh, quickly became the de facto computer guy because this was like the early 90s. So all these old guys had no idea about computer stuff. Started thinking how computers and process and manufacturing and all that stuff fits together at a very early age. I went to college early. I went to college when I was 15. I actually lived on campus too. That's the question people always ask. I actually moved on campus. While I was in college, I was still working at my dad's place. I started a tech company called Advanced Mnemonics, and it was just a brand brand that I had built that was like basically could, could generate lots and lots of traffic. And then I built a network around all that traffic and then sold it to Wall Street funded firms. The more traffic I sent them, the more money they got for Wall Street. And then the cycle would repeat until one of them bought me. So that was pretty cool. So at 19, I had sold that. Then basically from 2000 to 2013, I really was an M&A focused type guy. I was looking for acquisitions that I could either apply a consolidation and roll up strategy, which I learned from my dad's manufacturing business, because that's what he was doing. And process and system automation, but with like software and technology as a way of making companies more efficient. And then that was my strategy from 2000 to 2013, moved to Florida once I sold out my last one of those. And then in Florida, I basically said, all right, I've been financially successful, but I've been one of those like brute force type entrepreneurs. I did everything through brute force. Maybe there's a better way that will be more enjoyable for me. I didn't know what that was. But when I came to Florida, I just did a mindset shift of going from I know everything I know nothing. And then I just met with and talked with every entrepreneur, business person, nonprofit, whoever, whoever talked to me, I wanted to hear their perspective on how they do business. And then over the last 10 years, had a couple different startup things I've been involved in, but mostly I've really shifted to, I'm very investor focused and I've been investing quite successfully in alternatives, real estate operating businesses, that sort of thing. Yeah. And now I've done that quite well, actually over the last couple of years. So I'm rolling that into a fund that now I'm putting some operating structure around so we can really raise a fund and do this at some scale too. So that's where I'm at. That catches you up pretty fast.
0: Okay. So a lot of stuff there to unpackage. One thing I'm just curious, you're in college growing this company at the same time you have an exit. And I'm guessing you're in class with people that are studying economics. You're with these professors that may have never started a company. What was that like there growing and scaling a company? And at the same time, being around these people, how is that interaction?
1: Yeah, great question. So I was a philosophy and business major. Those are my two majors at that time. And honestly, it kind of, I think I kept the two Things right. It was almost like I was living in two different worlds at the same time. I think that had a lot to do with it because I guess the business students, I suppose, were interested in what I was doing, but the philosophy people didn't care at all. Like they were not interested at all on the business side, and I think maybe that's where my attitude of I knew everything came from. Basically, until I was around thirty-three or so, when I was when I flipped that. When I moved to Florida, because from a very early age, I don't want to say I didn't know everything, but I could figure everything out. Maybe that was a good way to say it. It wasn't that I knew everything. It was that I was able to figure everything out and people would rally around. Oh, Dan will figure it out kind of situation. I think that's got a little cocky, I think, because of that over in those early years.
0: I'm just picturing the 17, 18 year old with the cocky attitude, but. It was
1: absolutely the case. It was absolutely the case. I definitely knew what I was doing and wanted everyone else to know that I knew what I was doing.
0: So So back in that time, those first few years, other than maybe that was a lesson learned later, but what lessons did you learn there that was really that foundation? Because since 1994, you've just been founding one company after another. So what was the core lessons you learned there that really propagated throughout the years after?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Let me start with the lessons that I learned slowly, because there's lessons I learned quickly which was like what I was doing, basically. I love consolidation. Like I grew up in it. The idea that you can take two things that are the same and cut out all the overhead and mush them together. And like, now you've got a bigger business that's more efficient with less overhead, more revenue, all that. There was like those tactical things that I learned. Same thing with, especially at the time, the late mid nineties through early 2000s, there was a lot of opportunity in the market to take a business that really was, that didn't have any or maybe the level of possible automation and system optimization within a boring process, right? So a lot of times when people think of tech companies, especially at that time, they thought of specific tech companies that were doing tech things. I was, other than my first company, I didn't really deal a lot with tech companies in the traditional sense. I would just apply tech to regular companies. And that really was a big advantage because people who were in those regular companies weren't looking at it that way. So those were the things that I learned quickly during that time period. What I learned slowly to my Kind of personal emotional detriment was that corporate culture and people's feelings is an important variable and metric that you have to take into account when you're figuring out what you're going to do. Now, especially this many years later, and even after the last 10 years in Florida, I think I've learned that even that lesson even more deeply. But yeah, during that time, I did not consider that variable. I think. I'm sure people would quote me as saying something to the effect of, I just want a bunch of robots referring both to literal robots and the people that are working for me. I just wanted them to be like robots, but that doesn't work. And that's not a good corporate culture. And that's not like really the way to get things done. Not any way long-term or sustainable anyway. So yeah, those are like the two big, the quick things I learned and then the longer thing that I learned.
0: Okay. So since 1994, continually founding companies, but you've always been a solo founder. I hear in Silicon Valley, so many times you'll hear the, hey, get a co-founder, get someone that will compliment you, or it's a tough journey of one. Why every time just being a solo founder, why not having a co-founder?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So that goes back to the point about the culture and about robots and all that sort of stuff. My mindset was that I was the smartest, and I had to be 100% in charge. Like I had to be fully in charge. That was my attitude. And I believe that to be the case because I had to have full authority. And I, maybe that comes from. Maybe that comes from inexperience or maybe some underlying level of self lack of confidence or something. Who knows where that came from originally? I don't know. But I believe that I had to be 100% in control. So at that time, never considered a co founder under really any circumstances. No one would have been able to talk me into it otherwise. How do I generally feel now about co founders? That's maybe a different kind of question. I believe that a co founder or a partnership, however you want to call it, type relationship can be super valuable and can be like a real, plus to a company achieving whatever it is they're trying to, what I've witnessed myself through my own experience, as well as watching and hundreds of other folks I've interacted with that have been in similar situations. The thing with co-founders and or partners is you have to be clear on why your partner And truly, what is each person bringing to the table? So from an operations perspective, like just operationally, what are our expectations of each other? What is each person doing? Because people sometimes, lots of times, mistake the titles of co-founder or CEO or all these titles that they assign each other as like being connected to the fact that they founded and or invested in the company. And so realistically, the act of founding, the act of being the CEO, and the act of investing are three different things. So it's possible that you guys might agree that yes, those three things are represented by one person or two people or however it all breaks out. But you have to realize always that those are truly different roles. And at any given time, those roles may be removed from that single person if it's in the best interest of the overall company. That's probably why I in the past would have never considered that because I wasn't even aware of how that would all work. But going forward, I think that anyone who is in a founder type situation or considering a founder type co-founder relationship to just remember those roles, founder, C-level person, whatever title you give yourself and dollar investor are literally three different roles. And each one needs to be defined separately and clearly. So expectations are clear so that when you really get into the nitty gritty of it, and also what what you expect everyone to do, because lots of times there's, especially when there's multiple founders beyond two, like maybe there's three, maybe there's four. You start to say, okay, you're the sales guy, you're the IT guy, you're the blah, 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 blah. What happens when you found this company and it turns out one of your founders who said they were going to really put the effort in, turns out they're not going to. And now you've already vested their shares and now they own a piece of it. And now you've got a zombie partner. Same thing with an investor. You got a zombie investor who said they were going to help you with like from the smart money perspective and then, but they're not really doing anything. So being very clear on those things and in an ideal world, creating operating agreements or shareholder agreements, however you define it you literally spell that stuff out what is your expectation of everybody what is it to keep to stay involved and stay in the good graces of the entire group and the company what do we want from each other because it's really easy to be happy and everyone's excited when you're like imagining and you're founding but once you like get into it as especially when the shit hits the that's the point where having clearly defined roles and knowing what you're expecting of each other really comes into play
0: going back to what you'd mentioned earlier about being wanting to control everything. Companies can only scale so far with one person. How did you go about deciding, okay, I'm going to outsource this task or I'm not going to do this one anymore. I'm going to hire. How did you go about the decision process? Okay. This task, someone else, then this will be the next one. And this will be the next one.
1: Yeah. Good question. So I've never been much for like direct labor. So I was very, it was very easy for me to hand away direct labor type activities. Like if it was like, for example, coding related or stuff that actually had to work and take up a lot of hours. So that I moved that stuff away pretty quickly and easily. When it came to like higher level decision-making, frankly, I built my model on not having to make a lot of those decisions. Like meaning like, I looked at a company and part of my diligence like during the acquisition process was to determine, can I, I'm thinking only short-term time frame, like less than two years. So I'm not like thinking super long-term. I'm going in with a very specific objective. We're going to implement this process or we're going to acquire this company plus these two others and then we're going to integrate them and then I'm going to sell it. Didn't really need to make those decisions too often. I was able to really control everything for better or worse from a very much everything flows through me perspective. And I really only had to worry about exit in terms of how do I then, when I go to sell, hand that off to the next person or group. So a lot of times during at the sale process is really where I was really handing it off to the next owner. I wasn't ever really handing it off to anyone within the company at that point.
0: That's interesting. So I'm curious, would you kind of position yourself more as, I don't want to say a turnaround expert or a growth expert or because a party of one Going into a company and then taking it <laughs> here and then getting that inflection point to sell in two years, yeah, that's a skill set we don't we don't really see. So how would you clarify it?
1: It's a lot. It's a lot. It's for one. It was a lot of hours and commitment. Like for me personally, which is why when I moved to Florida, I didn't want that anymore. I wanted to do it a different way. So yeah, how did that work exactly? Yeah, it was a, it was a commitment of hours. And I think it was very much committing to knowing what my sweet spot is. So if I was looking at a company that met the sweet spot 80%, but there was 20 that wasn't the sweet spot, I, I would move that. No, that's not a good fit. I, Cause I it was being very specific, I think, in my search criteria and then what I got what I decided to get involved in or not. It was a it was a there were some overlapping companies where I had bought another one before I'd sold the other. And so it was a lot of hours. It was not fun sometimes.
0: Okay. So Next, moving on, one of your companies, Liticorp. There, you reduced the back office staff by 80%, replaced with smart software to handle previously labor-intensive duties. When you were looking at to acquire that, did you already see all that? And go, oh my gosh, there's so much bulk here. If I get rid of that, it's going to go to the moon? Or was it okay, I think there's opportunity. And then after the acquisition, digging into the sand and discovering stuff as you went along, how much was pre-planned?
1: Oh, that was pre-planned. That one was, that was actually like probably the smoothest example of what I did and what we produced. So like that one in particular, I don't even remember. I think I got it through like maybe a friend of my accountant's lawyer's brother, one of those kind of relationships, kind of opportunities. Hey, there's this guy, he started this company like 25 years ago. And he wants to sell it because he's fried. Like, it was one of, by the way, anyone who's like interested in acquisitions and who wants to like look for good opportunities, finding those guys who've waited too long to sell are great opportunities because they're fried. They can't do it anymore. Like, they're just emotionally done. You can get really good companies that way. So, anyway, this guy was in that position. He was done. He wanted to go live in his cabin in the woods of Wisconsin. So I went and checked it out just like I would any other, like I talked to the guy on the phone. He sent me some basic kind of P&Ls and things to look at. And I was like, okay, this sounds interesting. It looks interesting. I'll go meet the guy. So when I went to go meet him, he gave me the tour and was explaining to me how everything worked. And I'm looking around the first day, the first time I saw it, and he's explaining to me how they move like work, I guess is a good way to describe it, how they move work through the office. Lidacor, by the way, it does, did, does, continues to do video production, and trial support for lawyers. So their customers are essentially personal injury lawyers and or insurance companies that are in that space as well. A lot of times it's not all personal injury, but a lot of it ends up being that because there's a lot of trials related to that. So anyway, he's taking me through this whole thing and I'm seeing like all these people sitting at desks. And this is, oh, this was, when was this? 2000 something? It had to have been like 2000 maybe, oh yeah, it was right. It was after the financial crisis. So 08, 09, something like that. I don't remember the exact year, but it was definitely after the financial crisis because there's that ties in. So anyway, I see all these people sitting around doing all this like manual labor, literal manual labor of moving paper and or working on PDFs, but like manually updating them and then up oh, something changed in the schedule, send that piece of paper back through again, and we'll manually update again. And it was like, That's all these people did all day long. It was like, and again, it was like 80%. I'm like, it was a lot of people. That's all they did was just like run this massive manual system that they set up. I'm like, this is exactly what I do. This is is it. So for about the next 90 to 120 days during our diligence period, I said to the guy, I was like, hey, I'm like, I'm interested. Let's do an LOI. Let's get into our due diligence period. So through the entire diligence period, while I was looking at the financials, I was dragging out the time because I did have a computer guy who was developing the software that we were going to implement and replace all these people with while we were going through doing due diligence. So we were like, I probably could have been through the diligence in 45 days. But I dragged it out almost 120 because we were doing all the development on the back end. So the day that we acquired the company, we also laid off all of the people that we were planning and laying off, like in one move. Like it wasn't like we never brought them onto our payroll at all. It was just like, okay, that's it. This whole group is gone. And then there was a little bit of trepidation around that because people always say, oh, a company is acquired now. Well, how is it going to change? And everyone's nervous. And everyone tries to kind of like stem that. Is like, oh no, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. In this case, it wasn't for them anyway. We went. We just were like, nope. That's it. Sorry, thanks. We don't need you anymore. Here's all your severance and it's over. It was all part of the transaction. And we got that thing implemented immediately. Like it was so simple. Like it was like, that was like the easiest thing. Then for a year and a half or so, made a ton of money in that business because obviously, take out all that payroll, it just drops to the bottom line. And then what was interesting about it was going back to the financial crisis, the market and the economy at the end of the day affects everything. And so, although I had done all these like awesome improvements from an operational perspective, the insurance companies who were the ultimate end user, whether it was they were directly our customers or they were our customers, they changed their policies on how they dealt with personal injury. So in response to the financial crisis, because leading up to the financial crisis, I guess they had a lot of money. And so they were like, you know what, fight everything we're not going to let anybody get anything out of us. We're going to fight everything. So if they fought everything, we would we had a lot of business. But if they settled everything, there was nothing for us to do because things weren't going to trial. So basically like overnight, it's like the industry made this decision all at once and they essentially things that they used to fight constantly, they just settled no trials. So although the business was really great for a year and a half, that business actually never really met its kind of enterprise value goal because that industry shifted like that. So I actually still am a part owner in that company. I actually never fully sold out of that one because at the time, I just needed to be done with it. So I made a deal with someone. I was like, cool, I'll stay in it. You just keep running it. It still made money. Don't get me wrong. It still was okay. But so anyway, to this day, they still run it. And actually, the other thing, the, like the second part of that story is, last part of that story is that COVID actually was a huge boon for that business because it just plugged along under these kind of new rules, the way that the insurance companies dealt with going to trial and it squeaked up again over time, worked its way back up. They were doing more and more trials. But then when COVID happened, we shifted a lot of stuff that we had to send people to like physically send people to go there now all of a sudden everyone would do it via zoom so like we were able to cut out all that other travel and payroll related to people going and doing things because everything could be done in an office now and done via zoom in a weird way that company i don't know if it was as good as it was at the time we wanted it but it's doing quite well since COVID. so i guess it just comes back around eventually as long as you're as long as you you're offering a good service and you got a good batch of customers the market blesses you again
0: crazy because i'm guessing if there hadn't been that 80 percent reduction the company would have folded
1: yeah and a lot of people did a lot of other competitors did because they didn't have that and so i think that's also why when we wrote it up for the next call it 10 years before covid happened just wrote it going up in the right direction and then when covid happened and then we had this all this opportunity to do everything online there's not too many folks that were doing that so like it was a real advantage at that point
0: okay and then for these companies, it was mentioned that with the kind of changes, it didn't really hit that exit or that, that goal. What are successes for the metrics, the measurements for each project you do? Do you want this three to five X return? Do you want a 10 X return? Do you want to just this much cat? How do you, yeah, how question. do you look at success for one of these companies?
1: Yeah. So I'm looking over a two-year period, right? So if I can get like a 3X return on whatever capital I have invested, now I'm not going into kind of how I finance it because sometimes maybe it's a mixture of debt and equity, maybe it's a mixture of debt, equity, and some sort of seller financing, like however it fits together. But whatever at minimum, whatever capital I have invested for sure, three to three to five times, like you suggested, which generally. So of the eight companies between 2000 and 2013 that I was directly involved with in this way, six of them were probably two and a half to three times what I paid total. So it wasn't just a return on equity; it was return on all return on all invested capital at that point. So those were big; those were good wins, you know, with just in the in a short period of time. But that's easy to calculate. See, that's why unless there's a like a macro level event, kind of like there was with the financial crisis and the insurance companies changing the way that they do things. When you're doing a consolidation or you're doing like a roll up, which I considered my process optimization using this, I use the same math as I would if it was a consolidation. Right? I'm not consolidating necessarily into another company. But I'm I'm cutting overhead and I'm increasing efficiency and creating kind of the same outcome as I would with a consolidation. And then in some cases there are actually more literal consolidations happening too. But you can figure all that stuff out on a spreadsheet. You can, I'm for the most part, have been pretty accurate about that. And then pending outside forces, market forces, usually the thing I predicted to happen within a couple of years after implementation is what happened. In in most of the cases. So I didn't need to make like a 10x or a 20x. I didn't like because I I wasn't anticipating any losses really. And I didn't have any losses. One of them was a little bit of a stinker, which I guess maybe I lost a little bit on. But on average, across the eight, it was not really an issue. I think that's the key thing to remember that. And that's kind of how I invest now too. I invest the exact same way now in that I want to be able to figure it out on paper. That's just generally the way that I operate. I don't buy into The kind of vision stuff so many investors, I think, get caught up in because they want to hear the story and they want to hear the passion of the entrepreneur and blah, 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 blah. I don't really care about that stuff. Show me the number. Best entrepreneur founder who's telling me how he's going to go do whatever, he better have a pro form of how he's going to communicate to his target. His target market and how, like the numbers work with that. I'm going to spend this much money doing these types of things. That's going to produce this messes, and then those responses are going to turn into a customer. So, therefore, my cost for acquisition of customer is X, and therefore my return on this entire investment. Calculate it all out. I've seen so many times where people will pitch me stuff are already in bad shape because they went down a path, and it's if you just put it on a spreadsheet to begin with, you can catch a lot of issues so like ahead of time that this is not a good idea or it is a good idea. So I think that's a key when you're talking about returns and what you're projecting, at least for me, is can I just figure it out and see that it makes sense on paper to begin with? You know, again, pending the unknowns, but it should be pretty easy to figure out and hit.
0: Then with that, what type of due diligence are you doing on companies? Because there was another company you founded, Robotation Corp, where you were invested yeah. in small companies and put it in technology. So how were you going about the yeah, proforma they were giving you and the one you were created and matching them up and how'd that yeah,
1: work? Great question. So Robotaton was a business that was the hybrid between being a straight investment company and being what I was doing before with all this hands-on, make things better perspective. And I was also trying to change the kind of the risk profile of what I was doing, because if I own a company a hundred percent, this was the logic behind Robotaton. If I own a company a hundred percent, I take on all the risk. The market risk, I take on the risk that an employee falls down and then all of a sudden sues the company. Anytime during that two-year period, let's say, I have 100% of the risk, completely unrelated to what I was doing or that I wanted to deal with. So Robotiton was a structure, a modeled structure that was an attempt at removing that, kind of those risk profiles, those risk items that I didn't want to deal with. So I basically said, here's what I'm going to do. I removed those risk things, but the ultimate result was created another issue, which I'll get into. I basically said, all right, you've got a good, healthy company. It's moving along. You're making money. You've got sales. Everything looks great. I've identified these inefficiencies from an optimization perspective that we could do and improve with technology and automation and all that stuff. Cool. Here's the breakdown of what all that looks like. Now all we have to do is build it. Okay. What's it going to cost to build? It's going to cost $250,000 to build and another nine months to implement. Okay, cool. Great. So my investment then becomes $250,000 plus nine months worth of time. However, that works in terms of implementation. So let's say total, I'm into it for a half a million dollars. The guy who owns the company and the management team that runs the, the management team, they're still in charge. I'm not 100% charging. My team goes in, makes all the improvements, does all the implementation. And then at the end of that, we produced some sort of reduction in whatever costs we were trying to reduce because of these new things. You calculate that out, whatever that calculation is, I split that 50-50 between myself and the business. That was the that was the model. The problem with that model ended up being was that I was looking at it myself as like an investor and a, and I was looking at the company like an investment vehicle with kind of like this tech component where the companies that I was dealing with, the owner would look at me that way or the person who hired, me. let's say that's part of the problem, too the word hire, because I wasn't looking at it like I was being hired. I was looking at it like I was investing. And the person who made the deal with me also looked at it like I was investing. But to everyone else in the company, I was hired, or our company was hired. So now, when I had that 100% control when I owned it, and I could, as hard as it was, I had all the authority. I can tell people, this is what we're going to do, shut up or get out kind of situation. I was able to get things implemented and done very quickly because I had that full control. In this scenario, most of the people in the company looked at our guys, myself, as, and the guys who came in with me as like consultants. So they didn't really—they didn't really report to us. We weren't their boss. So if they wanted to drag their feet on something, they drag their feet on. If they didn't really weren't bought into the what this thing is supposed to be, they didn't have to really do anything. So we had to go back to the guy who brought us in and say, "Hey, this department's not." getting us what we need and we can't get this done and blah, blah, blah. It wasn't as efficient from an implementation perspective as when I could just bring the hammer down and say, this is what we're doing. So honestly, that scenario was unforeseen when I modeled it out. And then I basically just, then we, I did a couple deals like that. And we got into it and I was like, no, this is not a good business. This is not going to work because it was more like things that should have taken 30 days, 45 days were taking like six months to get done and get implemented because of this kind of like cultural dynamic, the fact that I didn't actually have any control. And then my company and my guys that went in were really just looked at as a service provider to that point.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. And then with that, when do you think it's a good idea to build Customize software or to go out and get a th- your party license, maybe have the vendor customize a little bit. When do you make that decision? Build it in house or get another product to bring in?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think it depends on how deeply integrated, like into the workflow of the business, like what you're trying to accomplish. Like, I'm all for if you can accomplish it with an off the shelf solution that can be just maybe customized a little bit and get you everything you need to for the area you're trying to improve and it's gonna make that big difference, great. What I found is that off the shelf generally only gets you so far and then you, you end up plugging the holes with people and that people, that labor costs you money. So you give up your efficiencies because you're having to pay these people to fill the gaps that the off the shelf system can't do. So even though it might cost you more to do something custom, At the end of the day, if you eliminate a person who's nowadays, an office person might be costing you $80,000 a year doing basic stuff. So if you can produce the development for less than $80,000, your payback is one year. So in those scenarios, I usually think that it's that, again, it depends how it is. There's a book called The Goal by the guy's last name is Goldratt, and it's about the theory of constraints, which I am like, that's basically my Bible. If anyone wants to read my Bible, read that book, because the theory of constraints is this, is applicable. It was basically applied to manufacturing specifically and production, those types of production activities. But realistically, the theory of constraints is really a philosophical way of looking at the world in that. There's always this one constraint, and that's where you should put all your effort and all your focus on, because that's really the thing that's holding up the throughput of whatever it is you're trying to do. Anything else beyond that's on either side of that constraint, if you're thinking of it like a continuum, will be ineffective in producing the output that you want, which is increased workflow, let's say, or increased outflow of a business or profitability or whatever it is. So going back to your software question, if you can find an off-the-shelf piece of software which happens to align with your constraint and addresses your constraint specifically, then it'll probably be fine. But even if it's just a little bit to the left or to the right of the constraint, and if you start, if you use that thing, then you're really either, if it's to the left of the constraint, you're going to create efficiency to the left of the constraint, which is going to create a backlog of, thinking of it as manufacturing, a backlog of parts trying to feed through the constraint. Or if you're on the other side of the constraint, then you're going to produce a, a shortage. You're you're going to you're going to feel a shortage because you can't get the stuff through the constraint fast enough. So you have to. You can look at every software system like that. You can look at your own career like that. Like you can look at it and say, I do all these things in my job, or all these things that I could be doing, but to get to the next level as an individual. But what's the one thing that would really make the biggest impact? And constantly ask that question, and then pick away at that one thing. Put all your focus on that one thing. I can spend twenty hours working on my resume, like making it look super pretty, but is that really going to make the difference? Is that what's going to really drive it? Or is it going to be going out and networking with the right people who are the people I want to hang out with and I want to be employed by one day? That's probably a better use of that 20 hours. Being like, is it that I my resume is not pretty enough or is it that I don't know the right people? One of those two is the more of the constraint on me personally. So that's a great way to ask the question of whenever you're trying to accomplish something is what's the constraint? So that's what I ask when it comes to software too.
0: I like that whole time. I'm not sure if you noticed the biggest constraint for me was finding a pen to write the book's name down. So, <laughs> yep. So for our audience out there, I went through about three pens before I found one that actually worked. So
1: five more pens.
0: <laughs> so Dan, question for you. You have the title Chief Problem Solver. What does that title mean? How'd you get it? Tell tell us a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, that's what I like to do. I like to solve problems. I like to have these types of conversations. I like when people come to me and say, hey, this is what I'm dealing with, and I can't see a solution. I am very good at coming up with five different options for you from a solution perspective. So that's where that came from, is that's what I like to do, that's what I'm the best at, that's how I drive the most value in any conversation or investment I'm going to make or anything I'm involved in. So yeah, I look at myself over the last bunch of years as like a wandering kung fu master. You remember like those old like 1970s movie where the Kung Fu master wanders around and then he wanders into a town that has some sort of problem usually with some sort of gang of bad guys. And then he like cleans up the town. That's how I view myself at this point. Like I'm just, and I'm just trying to help people like lots of times I do that with no intention, no objective of even making any money in that specific interaction. Like I'm doing it just cause I love to do that. And I want to help people and see people be successful and be, from that attitude, which I've had regularly since 2019, basically, it's really an amazing trick of the universe, I guess, that when you when you adopt that attitude to help people and you just do it, so much good stuff comes back to you. I've done so many deals and had such great friendships and great partnerships and great investments that have come out of that attitude in the last three or four years, whatever it's been.
0: Fantastic. And- Before wrapping up, another question for you. With all these transactions you've done, one thing that's come up on this show quite a bit is the mental wellness of that emotional roller coaster of ups and downs through business. How have you prepared yourself for the sale of these companies or the acquisition of a new company?
1: Yeah. So again, we'll go pre-2013 before me moving to Florida. I didn't think about that at all. And (laughs) it was just all brute force. Again, it was all... Be kind of like stereotypical entrepreneur, just like mental toughness, deal with it attitude. I don't, that is not my attitude anymore. Now I'm looking to be able to have this journey in a way that is enjoyable, is fun, that allows me to balance my time and that I can really focus my time on the right things. So I think part of it is making that mental decision to not let that happen, like just make it unacceptable to to be burdened by that level of stress because it is a choice. People might not think that it is, but it is a choice because the positions we put ourselves in determine those outcomes. But I do think that at this point, one, one, I can't remember. I saw it on a YouTube video and I'm not going to be able to quote it. You guys might be able to find it specifically, but it was an Olympian who was talking about how her coach used to tell her that if you're training for the Olympics, it's like the rule of threes or a third. Basically what he said was, if you're training for the Olympics, you should, and I think this is actually how I look at things in general you're doing good. If one day you're feeling great, the next day you're feeling like, no, it's okay. It was just a normal day. And then the third day you're like really struggling. Like, so when you're training, like from a physical perspective, that means you're doing the right level of training. You're not like making it too easy on yourself because you're just comfortable all the time. And you're not making it too hard on yourself because you're miserable all the time. It should be like a third. So anyone who finds that, whoever that quote is from, it's not from me. It was from some Olympic coach. I think that sums it up pretty well for me too. i probably sometimes maybe err a little bit on the side of keeping it too easy for myself, but I guess that's what you do as you get older, maybe.
0: I don't know, I think it's all relative. So your easy day is probably that one third hard for the majority of us. That might
1: be true, yeah, that might be true.
0: (laughs) So Dan, with that, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it?
1: I would tell everyone, I'm just gonna put my email out there to anybody. If anyone wants to email me, dan at thebigda.com that's me, the big da.com then yeah, feel free to reach out to me. My assistant checks my email. So don't share anything that you don't want a third party to see potentially. Sometimes people send me stuff like that. I was like, Oh, we should have signed an NDA for this person. But yeah, always happy to talk with people and see what they're up to.
0: Fantastic. We're going to have that information in the show notes. If I find the Olympic quote, the YouTube video, will have that link as well. So for everyone out there, go to the website thesiliconvalleypodcast.com where we have all our past episodes. We'll have the show notes for this episode and more of what we're working on in the future. And when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley Podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Connect with me on LinkedIn or through the website, the Silicon Valley Podcast. Love to have a conversation. And with that, Dan, I really want to thank you for taking the time this week to be our guest on the Silicon Valley Podcast.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. Good to see you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.